You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. You'll remember last week we began uh, this chapter uh, talking specifically about the birth of Isaac, birth of the promised one. Uh, We said last week that the miraculous birth of Isaac is meant to increase our faith in the miraculous birth of Christ, which we are called to respond to with joyous praise and obedience, that God in his grace gives us Uh, example after example in the Old Testament of his ability to quicken dead wombs. That there are women in the Old Testament that, uh, that God desires to give children, but he forces them to wait. Ultimately, they have to submit to uh, praying and relying on him and trusting in him. And then God gifts them with children. Uh, He does that with Sarah. He does that with Hannah. Um, he, he gives them children after a long period of waiting. He does that to Samson's um, mother. We said that God is teaching us that if he can quicken dead wombs, he can also quicken a virgin womb. And so we see Isaac as kind of a precursor to Jesus. Um, and so God is building our faith in the Christmas story by uh, giving us examples in the Old Testament of his power over the womb of a woman. And so we saw the celebration last week of Abraham and Sarah finally celebrating the the birth of the child that had been promised to them for so many years. And so there's excitement, there's there's laughter, there's there's jubilation over uh, this gift of this child um, to, to Abraham and Sarah. But as I said last week, not everyone is thrilled and excited um, that there's another child in this story that that reacts differently to the birth of Isaac. And so I draw your attention to Genesis chapter 21, verse 8. It says, And the child grew, talking about Isaac, and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. 
When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water uh, that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand. That is, uh, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. I told you when you first come to this text, you may question and wonder what's the significance of it. And I think some of the commentators that I looked at felt the same way and gave very little treatment to it. It was almost as though some of them were uh, so anticipating what's coming in Genesis chapter 22 with uh, the sacrifice of Isaac They made a few comments on this passage and then jumped straight ahead to Genesis chapter 22. But what's one man's junk is another man's treasure. And there were some commentators that really dove in deep and taught me some things. And and then I was able to meditate on some of the things going on in this chapter and really found some important truths that are also reciprocated in the New Testament that I really believe gives significance to this chapter for us today. So our summary sentence here is that we are called to respond in faith to God's promises rather than to perform legalistic acts for his approval. We are called as Christians, as believers, to respond in faith to God's promises rather than to perform legalistic acts for his approval. We're going to see that unfold today as we get into the text. But uh, to give you some initial background setting for this passage, uh, I think it's important to consider the age of the boys here. If we go back to... Uh, verse 8, it says, And the child grew and was weaned, talking about Isaac. Isaac is about three years old at this time. This is the normal weaning period. Um, this is a, an opportunity for uh, Abraham and Sarah to really celebrate the fact that he has moved beyond the dangerous age of infancy. So he's a toddler at this point. He, he's grown up. He, he's weathered the, the early years where they don't have the same medical treatment that we do today. So a child was subjected to illness and, and, and possibilities of not making it through that initial age of infancy. And so while there was rejoicing over the birth, there was still this, we've got to take a wait and see approach. Is Isaac going to live? Is he going to, uh, to develop into this promised child? And, and so now there's a great celebration. Abraham plans this great feast, this great party to celebrate Isaac's birthday. Ishmael, if you just kind of if you come to this chapter alone and just read through it, you may get the impression that Ishmael is also very young. I mean, it talks about him being a boy, talks about him being a child. But if you remember back in Genesis sixteen sixteen, we're told the age of Abraham when um, Ishmael is born. He was eighty six years old when Ishmael was born. Abraham's a hundred when Isaac is born. So Ishmael was 14 years old when Isaac is born. If we add on another three years, he's 17 years old at this point. He, he's, a, he's a young man. He's, uh, he's grown up. Um, he has, for a big port of, portion of his life, probably viewed himself as the one that would inherit everything that's Abraham's. He's the only son of Abraham. Now he hears 
Abraham and, and Sarah talk about the promised child, but for 14 years, it's him and him alone. And now three years have passed, and it really looks like Isaac's going to make it. Isaac's going to survive. And so there's some frustration that sets in for 17-year-old Ishmael. Ishmael's response, we're told here, um, is one of laughter, but it's different than the other types of laughter we see in this chapter. There's more of a mocking laughter, I believe, to it. But Galatians 4.29 gives us some deeper insight into the feelings that Ishmael has towards Isaac. In Galatians chapter 4.29, a passage that we'll come back to later, it says, uh, But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. There, there's two different births going on here, and if you read Genesis or Galatians chapter 4, you'll realize the one who's born of the Spirit is Isaac. The one who's born of the flesh is Ishmael. And so it talks about the one of the flesh, Ishmael, persecuting him who was born of the Spirit. So this isn't playful laughter. This isn't older brother hanging out with his younger brother. There's some intentional envy and anger towards Isaac. Um, Paul labels it persecution that actually comes out of, of this interaction. What we find here is that the circumcision that Ishmael has received has simply been an outward act. It's not something that has changed his heart as an individual. His envy has magnified the importance of Isaac at the cost of diminishing and belittling his own importance. Um, and I think, had this, and, and we'll come back to this, I think had this been allowed to fester, this would have really resulted in a type of brotherly interaction like Cain and Abel. Um, some real disregard for the other, some real hatred and envy and jealousy towards the other that God very graciously steps in and intervenes and prevents. Sarah demands for Hagar and Ishmael to be removed. And I think when you first read through this, it, it seems harsh and inappropriate and, and the wrong type of response that she should have had. You'll remember, she's the one that forced this. She's the one that suggested that Abraham and Hagar be together and bear a child. And now she wants to lash out in frustration. See, she, she sees Ishmael mistreating her son and says, get rid of him, get him out of here. I don't want to see him again type of response. And so... You kind of read through it and you think, is this appropriate? Should she be chastised for this? And I think when you see and take into account what this text says and what Galatians 4 says, that it is an appropriate response for her. And a couple reasons for that. Reason number one, God validates her request by telling Abraham to yield to her. So she makes this suggestion to Abraham, get rid of them, cast them away. Abraham kind of pauses and bucks it a little bit and says, I don't want to get rid of them. Um, remember, he, he loves his son, Ishmael. He even suggested that God use Ishmael as the promised child instead of Isaac before Isaac was born. He doesn't want to get rid of him, but God validates her request. God comes to him and says, um, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So God validates the request of Sarah. Reason number two Galatians 4 seems to highlight the appropriateness of the action. And we're going to go to Galatians 4 here very soon. But Galatians 4 takes this story and really validates what happens um, and shows it as an appropriate response. So if we break down this chapter into three different sections, we're going to start first with Abraham's removal of Ishmael. 
why would God approve of Hagar and Ishmael being banished? All right, so if we're saying that this is an appropriate response, that what Sarah suggested was what was supposed to happen, why is that okay? Why is that what should have happened? Why would God want this? Why would God approve of a woman and her son being cast out when, when Hagar was really forced to be a part of this, that, that she, this was not her idea, this was Sarah's idea? Um, why would God approve of this? Why would God uh, allow this to happen? And I think there's several different reasons we consider. First of all, I think there was a growing conflict with a legitimate threat. There was a growing conflict here between these two boys, and there was a legitimate threat to Isaac as the promised child. Sarah has a growing concern over the long-term safety of Isaac. I made mention of the fact, I think, that had this been allowed to continue, you may have seen Ishmael really lash out at Isaac and potentially, potentially try to take his life. Sarah identified this problem and demanded that it be rectified immediately. And honestly, can we really fault her? She's waited for all these years to have a child. Her motherly instincts kick in. And if it's more than just laughing at her son, it's more than just teasing her son. As Paul says, there's really persecution that's coming towards her son. As a mother, she's saying, we've got to remove all threat to my child. That, that I'm far beyond the years of childbearing. This is my one and only son. We've got to make sure that he is safe. What she suggests to Abraham is that these two slaves be set free. Remember, they, Hagar was probably given to Abraham and Sarah in Egypt when they wandered down there during the famine. What's being suggested is that they be set free, that they're no longer slaves, which means Ishmael no longer has a right to any inheritance of Abraham's. Ultimately, Ishmael is living out the prophecy concerning him. You'll remember back in Genesis 16, 11, and 12, when God talks about Ishmael, he talks about him being uh, an individual who is at odds with those around him, and he's at odds with Isaac here. It seems that the only possible resolution to this is to send them away in order for Isaac to be protected. So growing conflict with a legitimate threat, but secondly, validation for the sacrifice of Isaac. Genesis 22 is the sacrifice of Isaac. As Isaac grows old um, and, and becomes more of a, a young man, there is this uh, call by God for Abraham to offer him up. And I think this story, this event, this encounter sets the stage for Genesis 22. I made a note uh, in Hebrews eleven nineteen, when Abraham is being commended for his faith. Hebrews eleven nineteen it says, or verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author of Hebrews makes mention of the fact that Abraham proceeded to go forward with offering Isaac, and that he considered God able to raise Isaac from the dead. What it doesn't say is that he considered God able to use Ishmael in place of Isaac. Why does it not say that? Because Ishmael has been removed from the setting. I think it's really important that God removes Abraham's backup plan so that when it comes time to offer Isaac, he is truly offering up his only son. That it can't be in the back of Abraham's mind that, okay, I'm going to offer up Isaac because at the end of the day, if you don't bring him back to me, if you don't provide a sacrifice, 
There's always Ishmael. There's always Ishmael. He can always be the promised son. Instead, God says, I'm going to remove Ishmael so that the only thing you can do is trust in me. You can only trust that I'm either going to provide a sacrifice or, as the author of Hebrews says, raise Isaac from the dead because there is no backup plan. The event serves as a mini test for the ultimate test regarding Isaac. God is teaching Abraham that he has to be willing to give up his seed in order to trust in him fully. So I think this is a a huge point of validation for the sacrifice of Isaac. Let's remove the backup plan. Let's let's build your faith. You're going to trust me with Ishmael, a son that you're probably never going to see again. I'm going to build your faith and trust in me regarding the loss of that son to prepare you for the potential loss of your other son. Number three, I think God validates this move by Sarah because it becomes a gospel analogy that serves others in the future. Not only does it protect Isaac from this growing conflict, not only does it help prepare Abraham and validate his his offer of Isaac as a sacrifice, God, in ways that he normally does, takes an Old Testament situation and uses it for gospel purposes in the New Testament to bring to deeper light, to to, to a more clear understanding of of a truth, specifically the gospel here, in Galatians chapter 4. God takes this situation, this setting, and teaches us a deeper understanding of how the gospel works. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 gives meaning in the New Testament to what seems like a random story in the Old Testament. And Paul draws upon this to really drive home an important truth. In Galatians, specifically chapter 3 and 4, he is really harping on an understanding of gospel by grace through faith versus a legalistic works-based mentality for salvation. And he's trying to break through uh, to, the, to the Judaizers who are wanting to, to put a yoke of slavery on the Gentiles who are coming to Christ. And so he uses this story, this analogy, to really drive home his point. It says in Galatians 4.21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So he's, he's harping on the fact that in the same way that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, those that are born slaves and under the law are persecuting those that are being set free from it. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right, what's this talking about? How do we, how do we break this down? There's a, there's a contrast that's taking place here. Sarah and Isaac are set up against Hagar and Ishmael, and they're used as contrasting means for relating to God. How do we relate to God? And ultimately, the question that's being posed is, who is your mother? Because both groups of people are claiming Abraham is their father. They're saying Abraham is our father. And, and Paul says what's really important now is who is your mother? Who is your mother? Are you a, are you a child of, of Hagar, one who is, who is subjected to slavery? Or are you one that's from Sarah, one that's subjected to promise? They're being set up in contrasting styles here. Sarah, Paul tells us, represents the new covenant that's expressed through faith. While Hagar represents the old covenant expressed through law and works. Isaac represents the fruit of faith. His birth is a supernatural birth. It's conceived by faith. Ishmael represents the fruit of the flesh, a natural birth. You'll remember this is Abraham's attempts to get the promises of God outside of God's working, right? They're supposed to wait. They're supposed to wait for God to give him a child. It's not happening between him and Sarah. So they conjure up this plan. Let's do it ourselves. Let's put forth our own effort to seize God's promise. And so Hagar's brought in, and they attempt to create what God has promised in their own efforts. Hagar, Ishmael, represent what happens when we try to seize control of salvation through our own efforts, through our own good works. Hagar was added after the promises of God, right? God made promises to Abraham and Sarah, Hagar comes in after the fact, much like the law comes in after God makes promises of redemption. The law was added to serve us. Just like Hagar serves Sarah, the law serves us, right? Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law has a a huge purpose in our life. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law served us. It was a tutor for us. It it revealed to us our insufficient holiness, right? It reveals to us our sin. Now, now God made provision by giving the law. The law was meant to separate Israel from the Canaanite people. They were to live differently, right? They were to live in holiness. They were to be holy as God is holy. But God built into that system, he built into that system the Uh, the knowledge of failure that would come, right? So as he gives the law, he follows it right up with the sacrificial system. You're not going to be able to obey this fully. You're going to have to bring sacrifices to acknowledge your failures, okay? So the law is put in place. It, It keeps us in check until Christ comes, all the while teaching us that we can never be made righteous through the law, that we can never keep the law for our own righteousness, that Christ is needed to come in to forgive us of our failures once and for all, the book of Hebrews tells us, right? So Hagar represents that old covenant where it came alongside for a purpose to show us our need for the promised child. Hagar gave birth to a slave. All through Galatians, Paul talks about the one who tries to remain under the bondage of the law being in slavery. Galatians 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, talking about Jesus, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's, but now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. We've been called to freedom, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's point here in this passage is that Hagar represents the, the faulty, perverted system of Judaism. So not even really, really how it was originally given to Israel, that they had perverted it and had made it a merit system. And so she represents this faulty system of Judaism as a way of human effort. And it leads to failure, according to Paul in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 8. This means that it is not children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. The way of human effort leads to failure. Hagar stands for those who depend on their own efforts. Whereas Sarah is set up as what we understand as Christianity, a way of grace and promise that leads to success. It stands for those who depend on the work of Christ by faith. And so if we go back to Galatians 4, what Paul is saying is that something has to be renounced. Specifically, the slave woman and her child. It says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So he takes Sarah's response, uses it in the New Testament as an allegorical picture of how the gospel works renouncing the slave woman and her son who was a sign of unbelief is to forsake our own attempts to please god outside the work of christ paul goes on to say because there is tension between the flesh and the spirit there must be a clean break from the flesh if the new nature is to develop and occupy the believer's heart it must be dealt with decisively and dethroned we see that in galatians chapter 5 verse 17 so God uses this random story of, of Sarah getting frustrated with Ishmael and saying, Honey, get these two out of here. I want my son protected. Paul looks back into the Old Testament and says, This is a lot like what's playing out before us spiritually. We've got those who want to subject people to, have, uh, to having to be back under the law to earn God's favor through a merit system type mentality. And yet the gospel frees us from that because the Christ has come to be everything that we can't be. We've been set free from that. And Paul uses this story as an account that, that, that Sarah casted them away. We too are to cast away that yoke of slavery. There's one more reason I think that God approves of the removal of Ishmael. Number four, an opportunity for increased trust in God's ways. So we've got this added protection for Isaac. It's preparation for him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. It's a gospel analogy that serves us, that helps us to better understand the gospel today. But it's also an opportunity for Abraham to increase his trust in God's ways. What we don't have in Genesis chapter 21 
is this outline given to Abraham, right? God doesn't sit down Abraham and say, Abraham, this is why it's okay for these two to be cast out because Isaac needs to be protected because what you don't see is that if they grow up together, Ishmael's going to kill him. He doesn't sit down with Abraham and say, I'm going to ask for Isaac here in the next few years as well, so this is a good testing ground for you to get ready for that. He also doesn't sit down and tell him there's a letter called Galatians that this is going to be huge for. It's going to take up a whole chapter. Abraham doesn't get that knowledge either, right? All he gets from God, look back in the text, all he gets from God, be not displeased. Verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he's your offspring. All he gets from God is that I'm going to take care of him. God simply assures Abraham that Ishmael has a future as well. And that's all he gets. God doesn't give him any type of explanation, doesn't give him any type of outline, doesn't tell him how this is going to serve people in the future, doesn't tell him how it's going to serve him in the next several years. He just simply tells him, trust me, don't be displeased by this. I'm going to take care of him and go do it. This is an increased opportunity for Abraham to trust in the ways of God, especially when he can't see exactly what God is doing. This is often how it works for us as well, right? The, the times we're asked to do things and, and, we, and we go through things and we don't get the outline for why this is a good thing. We've been talking about the fact we have to trust God's good intent to his children. He's made that promise, even if we don't always get the, the rundown of how this is going to turn out good. Abraham doesn't get that either. He's simply called to trust that God knows what he's doing. And we see God's provision for Hagar and Ishmael, which brings us to the second part of this chapter. It says that Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and skin of water, offered it up to Hagar and to Ishmael, and kind of sent them on their way. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Verse 15, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. It seems that they get lost in their wandering. And now they're in great need of provision. Before we actually see God's provision here, I think it's important to note that God delays the expulsion of Hagar until Ishmael is of grown age and able to provide for her. Note that this isn't God sending Hagar out with a newborn baby, right? There was tension between Hagar and Sarah right from the very beginning, right? She gives birth, or even when she's pregnant, right? When she's pregnant, it's, she is rubbing this in my face. I don't want her here, and she's hard on her, and Hagar runs away, and that could have been the end of it. But what does God say? Go back to Abraham and Sarah. God knows that he's going to cast them away 17 years later. But he says, the wilderness is no place for a pregnant woman. Go back under the care and the protection of Abraham's people. We're going to let that baby get, get older. We're going to let him grow up. This was, not, this was not the right way for things to happen, but this is how things happen because of Abraham and Sarah's choice. But God redeems it. He lets that child grow up to an age where he can take care of his mother and then they are cast away. So this isn't Hagar. And it would be easy to read this and think Hagar is wandering in the wilderness with a child and, and, and sets him down in the, in the brush and watches him and doesn't want to watch him die. 
This is a teenager. This is, this is a man that can take care of his mother. They're lost in the wilderness, though. And what we see is that God provides immediate needs for them. God provides immediate needs for them. She sits down ready to die. She lifts up her voice and weeps. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him to a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. God divinely reveals a well that was close by. This reminds us that God's grace is not reserved for the saved only. We have no reason to think that Ishmael grows up and is a part of the redeemed, right? He, he grows up as a wild man. His, his ancestors are always at odds with Israel. But God is always gracious to his creation. Whether they're saved or not, God has a common grace that he extends. And he extends it here to Hagar and to Ishmael. He takes care of them. He provides for their immediate needs. On, on a separate note, remember, keep in context, this is Moses writing this to Israel that has left Egypt and is about to wander through the wilderness. And there's going to be a lack of water. I think on some note, this is, a, this is an encouragement to Israel that if Hagar and Ishmael are in the wilderness, desperate for water, and I provide for them, how much more am I going to provide for you as my children of promise? See, this serves the children of Israel, the original readers, because they're going to actually be in a situation where they're desperately in need of water in the wilderness. And this ought to build their faith and trust because they've seen and heard about a God who gives water in the wilderness opens eyes to see wells that they didn't previously see. But God also provides for future needs here. Because he promises that this boy is going to grow up and develop a great nation from his offspring. When God promises this type of future, it implies ongoing provision in the present for Ishmael, right? It's not just, here's some more water, this will catch you for the next three or four days, but after that, who knows, maybe you will or maybe you won't have water. No, God says, Ishmael's going to grow up and there's going to be a great nation that comes from him. So he's making future promises that guarantee present ongoing needs being met. It's, it's important, I think, to note as well that Hagar had failed to rely on these previous promises to her as she should have. The last time she was in the wilderness, God promised that this boy was going to grow up and be a great nation. He can't die in the bush. He can't. She leaves him there and says, I'm walking away because I don't want to watch my boy die. And she's failing to remember 14, 15, 16 years ago when I was with him in the wilderness in my womb. He was promised to be a father of a great nation. He can't die right now. He doesn't have any offspring yet. She fails to rely on previous promises as she should. But that's also true of us a lot of times. We go through situations, we've got promises in our bank, right? Scripture's full of them, and we go through situations and we fail to draw upon the goodness of those promises. And we weep and, and we cry and we think, this may not turn out good for us, and we fail to draw upon those promises that have already been given to us. We learn that Ishmael does grow up, he marries an Egyptian, and we know that he does produce a great nation. But that brings us to our last section here, Abimelech's request for peace. Abimelech's request for peace. And so this chapter is kind of bookended with one individual who's a threat and peace cannot be won with him. And so Ishmael and Hagar are removed. But there's also another threat, Abimelech, the king of the Philistine people here, 
But Abraham is able to work things out with him, and they do come to a point of peace. You'll remember Abimelech is obviously mad at Abraham from their previous dealings. Uh, Abraham was deceitful and lied and caused great harm to Abimelech's people. But I think what's encouraging here is that Abraham's godly reputation is still present with Abimelech. Look what Abimelech says about him. It says in verse 25, Abimelech said, I do not know who has, uh, or wait, back up. Um, verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. Because I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. They, they both have mutual respect for each other. Right? They both come, they talk things out here. Um, Abimelech is coming primarily because he's concerned about Abraham long term, which is a testimony to God's provision. Uh, Abimelech and Abraham, mutual respect for each other. Okay, They show up, they're going to work things out. Um, Abimelech's coming because there's a lot of concern about Abraham and what he might be capable of in the future. This is a great testimony to an outsider seeing God's blessing on an individual and then seeing and anticipating that more blessing is going to come. He says, I want to make peace with Abraham before he really becomes a threat, before he really grows into a powerful force and can cause harm to my people. He says, I'm going to be preemptive and I'm going to try to take care of this up front. Abimelech does not foresee Abraham going away anytime soon. This is a man and a woman who started off leaving their home with nothing. They left everything behind. They brought dad along. He died. They brought Lot along. He, he wanders off to Sodom and is, and is never heard from again. And all of a sudden, they have grown into a powerful force. This is no longer an underdog. This is a, this is a team that's being put together that everybody's saying, in a couple of years, these guys are going to be awesome. And we need to make peace with these guys before they become a problem. He doesn't foresee Abraham going away anytime soon. What a testimony Abraham had for Abimelech to say, God is with you in all that you do. I put a note here. Is there enough evidence of God working in my life for others to take that type of notice? I mean, Abimelech looks and says, everything that you're doing, God is with you in it. God is blessing you, and he is working in your life, and that's evident to me as an individual who doesn't even believe in your God. And I can see him working in your life. They have mutual respect for each other. They have mutual interest in peace. Abraham agrees to this. Um, He says, I'll swear to it. Uh, There's no desire for him to break peace. Um, Abimelech desires to keep Abraham from attacking him in the future. He's seen as a potential threat because he's known to deal with falsely right as great as he sees god working in abraham he says you know what you're a guy that's dealt falsely with me before so i'm not going to just assume that you're not going to come attack me i want to i want to set up a formal covenant a formal agreement to make sure that we stay at peace with each other they also both shared a mutual interest in justice when abraham brings up this issue of a well and it being seized by abimelech's people abimelech says he doesn't know what he's talking about but he obviously wants to make it right So they go further into that covenant. Um, Abimelech surrenders the well uh, back to Abraham. Abraham offers animals as a sign of agreement regarding the ownership of the well. 
So Abimelech accepting these animals, these seven ewe lambs, is an expression, a public expression, that he's acknowledging that the well belongs to Abraham. So Abraham makes peace with Abimelech. He cannot make peace with Hagar and Ishmael, and they are cast away from his family. A couple of points of application as we close today. First of all, we're called to trust in God and him alone without any backup plans if he falters. Now, the encouragement to us is we believe that God can't falter, right? But God removes that backup plan for Abraham. He says, Ishmael is not going to be in the back of your mind when Isaac is on that altar. You're not going to feel as though you can offer this up to me because you have something in your back pocket. He says, I'm going to take everything else away from you to where it's you and Isaac and the real threat of losing him exists for you. And will you trust me in the midst of that? Will you trust that I can come through in a good way against all odds, against all logic, right? We've said before, Abraham didn't have a whole lot of history to believe that God raised people from the dead. We haven't talked about anybody yet at this point in Genesis that's been raised from the dead. And yet Hebrews says he believed, if necessary, Isaac was going to be raised from the dead. It's one thing for us to say, God can raise people from the dead because we've read about it. We know that it's happened. I don't know that Abraham had any belief or any knowledge that he'd ever done that before. And he had such a trust in God at this point in his life that he says, I know this is the promised child. I know it's not Ishmael. And even if I wanted to think that it was Ishmael, he's been removed. It's got to be Isaac. Isaac can't die. And you're going to raise him from the dead. That's different than Hagar saying, I'm leaving Ishmael under this bush, but you're going to have to raise him from the dead because you promised him that he was going to be a great nation. Abraham had that trust. He says, if necessary, you're going to bring him back from the dead. We're called to trust God in the same way. Without any backup plans, that we fully trust him. Secondly, we should seek peaceful relationships with others and should seek to restore peace when it's interrupted. This flows from Abimelech and Abraham's uh, interaction. We should seek peaceful relationships with others, and when there's a, a breach to that peace, Abraham brings it up with Abimelech, says, we've got to work this out, we've got to fix this, we've got to make sure that peace continues between us. We should have that same mindset as well. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven admonishes us to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 Verse 11, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. We should seek peaceful relationships. Our third application, we should be trusting in God and submitting to his work in our life so that others around us take notice and glorify him. This is is something that Abimelech was watching from a distance. He was watching Abraham and his interaction and and how he was trusting in God for this promised child. Abimelech obviously has some type of insight into what's going on in Abraham's life because he says, everything that we see happening, God is at work in your life. God is doing it in your life. We should be trusting in God in such a way that others around us are able to take notice and glorify him as well. Then our last application, which flows from that first section. We ought to remove anything in our life, whether it's an object or a faulty belief system that would pose a threat to God's work in us. We ought to remove anything in our life, whether it's an object, Ishmael being the object for Abraham, or a faulty belief system, which was the issue for the Galatians. 
There was a faulty belief system that was being preached to them that they had to cast away and remove it or else it was going to damage what God was trying to do in their life. A faulty belief system. For us, it may be an object, but we ought to remove anything in our life that would pose a threat to God's work in us. It's a story that God continues to work in Abraham's life. It's put there for us to see God's gracious work in him, to prepare him for what's coming in chapter 22. We see God's protection over Isaac, that he didn't just give him to Abraham and Sarah, that he was working to protect him. He removes that threat, removes Ishmael. But he also allows this story to serve us, not just as a narrative, not just as a story to tell, but he allows it to be a a deeper allegorical picture for us in the New Testament. Going back to our summary sentence, that we're called to respond in faith to God's promises rather than to perform legalistic acts for his approval. If you wanted to go back and read Acts 15, Acts 15 is where the Jerusalem council meets to make sure that that yoke of slavery is not applied to Christians moving forward. There's, a, there's deep interaction and discussion about how to make sure that the gospel of faith, that the gospel of grace moves forward and that the faulty belief system of, of merits and works does not continue and isn't allowed to breed in the movement that was, that, was, that was taking place in regards to Christ and what Christ had come to do. Um, so I'm thankful for this story, and I'm thankful for how it serves us in the New Testament. Um, but I think as we move forward into this year, obviously application is important every week, um, but even more so I think at the end of the year, where we really start to look forward to what this next year holds for us, that we become people who trust in God fully, that we don't feel like we need backup plans, that we seek peaceful relationships with others, um, that we submit to God's work in our life so that others are taking notice, um, and that we remove anything in our life that would be a hindrance. You know, we talked about besetting sins a couple of weeks ago. Abraham's besetting sin rears its head again with Abimelech. He doesn't trust God. He lies about his wife. We talked about identifying besetting sins in our life. That would fall here as well. Removing anything in our life, object, faulty belief system, besetting sins that would pose a threat to God's work in us in this coming year, that we be people that resolve to do good, and we plan to do good by planning to trust in God and his grace in our life for this coming year. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you uh, for your word and for minds that are able to, to read and study and comprehend truth that we need on a daily basis. Father, we've had the chance to sit and to read and to study and to talk today. But God, we need these truths as we prepare for another week. We need these truths as we wake up tomorrow and as we strive to be people that are zealous for good works, that are desiring to be obedient to you, that we're reminded when we do falter and when we do fail, that we have been set free because of the work of Christ, that our sins have been atoned for. And so Father, we thank you and praise you that we are children of promise. God, help us to continue to meditate on the glorious truths of your gospel and how you save us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come to set us free through everything that he accomplishes in his life. And God, I pray that we would be individuals that trust in you fully 
that don't need backup plans, that we would rely on your promises and that when we're put in situations where we need your promises, that we would respond with a faith that rests in the promises that we know. God, help us to learn from Hagar who was put in a situation that, that, that she could have relied on your promises and failed to remember those promises. And so she's, she's weary and, uh, and, and torn and, and, and broken thinking that her son's life is over, failing to remember that you had promised that it could not be over at that point. God, help us to realize in similar situations when we're wondering and questioning how can you be good, how can you be a good God in the midst of this situation that we would trust in your promises. God, help us to be the type of people that don't need explanations. In the same way that Abraham simply responded in faith and cast away his son Ishmael because you told him to, without a full-length explanation as to why it was a good thing, God, help us to be the type of people that respond and do what you've called us to do simply because you're worthy of our trust. And Father, help us to be individuals that will look into our life and identify anything in our life that poses a threat to what you want to do in us. God, in the same way that you identified Ishmael as a threat to Isaac and and his role as the promised child and he was cast away and removed, Father, I pray that we would would, uh, humbly look into our own life And if there's objects that have been set up in our life that have gained unnecessary attention, that they would be removed and torn down. If there's faulty belief systems that need to be corrected in our minds that would hinder what you want to do in and through us, that that those would be corrected through your word in the same way that you desired to correct the Galatians. Father, as we move into this new year, help us to be people that are clinging to your promises, knowing that whatever we face, whatever we encounter, you have resolved to do good in our life. Help us to come alongside and participate in that goodness so that we can glorify you a year from now with all that you've done in and through us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.